You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hi, I'm Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, and welcome to the International Catholic University, the beginning of a course on the norms of Catholic faith, scripture, tradition, and magisterium. And before we get into discussing the course itself and an overview of the course, I think it's important to get an overview of Catholic theology. There's a lot of different specialties, there's a lots of different areas of study, but really Catholic theology is interconnected. What we're studying, whether we're in a moral theology course or a historical theology course or spirituality, we're really studying the same thing. The object of theology and the, the quest of theology is really the same endeavor. First of all, how do you define theology? What's the classical definition? Well, I'm going to quote two people, St. Augustine and St. Anselm. They both gave the same definition for theology, and it's a classic in Catholic thinking, so it'd be good to memorize this. There's a little Latin phrase. Theology is fides querens intellectum. And what that means is faith seeking understanding. Theology begins with faith, and it's seeking understanding. What's it seeking understanding about? Well, it's always really the same thing. The object of theology is the truth about God and all things in relationship to God. That's what theology is about. That's the object of theology. And the way of doing theology is using your mind and proceeding from faith. Let's talk about God and everything related to him for a minute. What we're talking about when we talk about God and all things seen in light of God, we're talking about mystery. You can study lots of things in human life and get definite, conclusive, exhaustive answers. But when you're studying God, God is bigger than our minds. So we're talking mystery, okay? And there's an awe and there's a humility that has to characterize the doing of theology. We have to approach God on bended knees, as Moses did, you know, with, with uh, our sandals off. We're holy, on holy ground when we're doing theology. It can't be just done as a, some other academic discipline. And it's important to see that whatever course we're studying, we're always proceeding the same way. Faith seeking understanding, and what we're seeking understanding of is God and the relationship of God to some dimension of life and some dimension of the world. Now, our minds are so limited that we can't really take all that in at once. So that's why we have different specialties in theology. All right? We have to focus on one area if we can to grasp it, at one area at a time. We look at the same reality of God, which is immense, and we look at it from different angles. Just like, you know, you watch a football game and there are different angles of cameras. There's all different cameras everywhere. And they're all giving you a little, little different view of what's going on. And when you piece them all together, you get a more comprehensive view. Well, that's the way theology is. We have to look from different angles to kind of get the full depth and breadth of the mystery of God and his relationship to us. So I'm just going to kind of go over the different areas of theology for a minute because there's a lot to theology. First of all, the mystery of God. The mystery of God and his relationship to us prefigured and predicted and prepared for in the Old Testament. Studying the, the scriptures of the Old Testament are a specialty in themselves. We have scholars who are dedicated to the Old Testament. But we also want to study the mystery fully revealed in Christ. The mystery of God and his love for us 
and, and his saving plan for us as revealed in his son, Jesus. And the New Testament is a specialty itself. These are the privileged documents that talk about this full revelation of God in Christ. But there's also historical theology. That's looking at the development of Christian understanding of the Bible, you know, of, of what God has revealed there. You know, as time goes on, we get different insights and, and people have different ways of explaining and understanding things. Sometimes those understandings diverge, like in the Protestant Reformation. And studying that development over time is what we call historical theology. Then there's a specialty of the Trinity, studying the mystery of God as three persons in one God. Okay, that's a dimension of the mystery. The mystery of Christ as God and man is what we call Christology. The mystery of how it is that Christ saves us. We study the person of Christ, who he is, but then we, we study what he does, what he did for us, how he saved us. That's called soteriology. And then how about us, the human person, man and woman in Christ? How do we understand you, the human being. That's called Christian anthropology. So that's the mystery fully revealed in Christ. You see all those different subcategories. And then you have the mystery communicated in the Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a specialty that focuses just on the person of the Spirit, who He is. And that's called pneumatology. And then you have ecclesiology. The Holy Spirit works among us, and one of His works is bringing a people together. The body of Christ, that's called ecclesiology, studying the church, its structure, its purpose, its mission, the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, that's the church. But also, the Holy Spirit leads the church to adore Christ and experience his presence in liturgy, in sign and sacrament. So we have liturgy and sacraments. The, the mystery is celebrated among us. It's experienced in communal celebration. But you know, the, the mystery is also experienced in a day-to-day -day life. It makes a claim on our lifestyle. God's revelation, who he is, his plan for us, it really hits us where we live. When it, the way we deal with money, the way we deal with uh, our sexuality. This is Christian moral theology, the mystery's claim on our lifestyle. And then finally, there's more than just our exterior life that God's after. He's after transforming our inner life, our personal hidden life. And that's spirituality, the mystery present in us, personally interiorized to transform each and every one of us. So those are, that's a range, the same mystery, but just focused in on different, different ways, looking at it from different angles. But you know, all these specialties are fantastic, but there's a prior question that has to be asked, and that is, how do we know any of these things, you know, what God thinks about these things and what God is saying about these things? There's a methodological question. You know, how do we know that God exists? And if he exists, how, do, how can we know anything about him? All right, can we know anything? And if so, how? Where do we find the knowledge that we need that comes from God about all these things we just mentioned? Okay, where are those sources of, of, of knowledge of God and his will for us? Okay, these are the questions that we'll be dealing with in this course. Is scripture, is that a source of knowledge? Okay, well, which books do you include? in a list of sacred scriptures, of inspired writings, okay? Which books are most important? Why do we believe, as Christians, in the Bible, and you have Muslims believing in the Koran? You know, I mean, these are important kinds of questions. You've got to locate, if you're going to have documents that you think are inspired, that come from God, that reveal God, you've got to have some rationale for why these books and not other books. And how about other things? Is there anything besides scriptures that help us to locate God's will? to find the wisdom that God wants for our lives. 
How about tradition? Okay, is tradition an evil thing? Like the tradition of the Pharisees, is it a good thing? And if so, what tradition? There's lots of traditions out there. There's rabbinic tradition, there's Islamic tradition, there's Catholic tradition. That, you know, so where do we locate the authentic tradition if, the, if tradition is a source of knowledge about God? How about the authority of the teachers of the church, the officers, the bishops, the pope, the, the priests? What kind of, is that a place where we look for authority, for God's authoritative word for our lives? Okay, and if so, who has the last say? You know, in the United States, it's government, it's supposed to be clear that we have certain courts of appeal, you know, and you go all the way up and there's a Supreme Court. Well, what's the system of authority, of different levels of authority in the teaching office of the Catholic Church? How about reason, our minds? Can we trust our minds to tell us anything about God, our natural knowledge, what we can figure out looking around at the world and studying the world? Is that a source of knowledge? Is that normative in any way? That's a very important issue. How about inner experience? Have you ever heard somebody claim to have a revelation from God? People throughout history have. Is that reliable? Does God speak to people through inner experience? And if he does, whose inner experience ought we listen to? That's an important point to, to deal with and to reckon with. Now, let's say you locate all the sources and you agree, okay, the scriptures, this tradition, these, this magisterium, you, you agree with all that. Well, how do you interpret then what comes out of these sources? There's over 6,000 Christian churches that have the same Bible, but they interpret it differently. And that's why there's 6,000 different uh, denominations. So we really need to, to, to deal with this question of interpretation. And the question of interpretation is a specialty all its own. It's called hermeneutics. That comes from the Greek god Hermes, who was supposed to have been the messenger, translating the will of the gods to men and bringing men's messages back to the gods. So he was kind of an intermediary, a translator. Hermeneutics is how do you translate or interpret the word of God as it comes to us in scripture and tradition? And how do you interpret magisterial statements, doctrinal statements? You know, that's an important point. Okay, and then there's, there's another question too. How do we understand faith? Faith, is it a blind leap? Do we deny our intellect? Do we deny our senses? Uh, how do we understand and explain what faith is? Okay, now all the things I just mentioned are the questions that are all grouped together under one title in Catholic theology traditionally, and that's called fundamental theology. And we're going to actually be doing a bit of fundamental theology in this course. We're not going to do everything in fundamental theology, but, you know, fundamental theology, it may be a little abstract, a little theoretical, but it's really where the rubber meets the road. Where you stand on the questions that I just mentioned determines whether you're Catholic, Protestant, Mormon, uh, Orthodox, uh, fundamentalist, modernist, revisionist, conservative. I mean, all these things, that, you know, a lot of the disagreements that we have as people, as Christians, as Catholics, really come down to different understandings, different opinions on fundamental theology. So this is the rules, the ground rules. If you get this right, then you can evaluate what other people are saying about God, theologians. Um, you, can, you can really deal with all the other disciplines. This is the most really central thing to get to, under, to be able to do Catholic theology. Now, typically, uh, I just want to tell you there are three traditional branches of fundamental theology. And we are going, going, to stick, we're going to stick with one. We're not going to do all three in this course because of our time limitations. But let me at least give you the overview so you know what all three are. 
Okay, it's important. Fundamentally, fundamental theology covers these three areas. One is apologetics, the other is revelation, and the third area is faith, the act of faith, the analysis of the act of faith. I'm going to say just a few things about fundamental theology's um, three branches. Uh, we're going to spend most of the course on revelation. But let me just say something about apologetics first uh, off, okay? Apologetics doesn't mean what many Catholics think it, thinks it means, at least not in its strict sense. Uh, the word apologia in Greek means a speech in favor of the defense. So the origin of the word apology has to do with defending something. Now, there are many Catholics out there who will defend the faith and distinctive elements of the Catholic faith from attack from non-Catholic Christians. Okay, so that you can have Christians who all believe in the Bible who argue over doctrine. And many people call that apologetics. And that's fine, that's a popular use of the term. I'm not saying that it's wrong, but it's just not the technical, traditional use of the term. Apologetics, properly so-called in Catholic theology, has to do with finding reasons that strictly come from reason, from natural knowledge, and not from the Bible, because the Bible is revelation. You have to accept the Bible based on faith. But is there anything that we can show or prove about God? Is there anything we can know about God that's based not on revelation, but only on the basis of reason, the rational observation of the human person, of the world, the cosmos, of history? Can we learn rationally and, and anything about God and about salvation? Number one. Number two, are there rational supports in looking at the human person, in looking at uh, history, in looking at the world and the nature and the way it's structured? Is there at least some evidence that would support faith out there? Natural knowledge, limiting what we, what we can know uh, about God to natural knowledge, this is what's called apologetics or natural theology. Okay? So that's, that's what apologetics is all about as a species, as a, as a subdivision of this great branch of, of fundamental theology. Okay? So what do we do apologetics for? Okay. Uh, we do apologetics to show that there's some things that reason can know without the help of revelation, that it's rational for everybody to believe. And I'll just give you an example, okay? The Catholic Church has taught authoritatively that it is possible to prove the existence of God based on reason. Not the existence of a triune God, but the existence of a supreme being, a creator who is beneficent, who we ought to give worship and honor and homage and gratitude to. Now, that is something that you find in many, many, many of the world religions, all the great world religions, and you find many... Even pagan philosophers could discover this, like Socrates and, and, and Plato and people like that. That's, this is something that doesn't require revelation to know. We also can know basic, what we call natural law. The ethics of the Ten Commandments, all ten of them, don't really require revelation. We can know all the things taught by the Ten Commandments based, by, based on common sense. And if you look at all the religions of the world, you find pretty much the Ten Commandments enshrined in all of them. They may not be enumerated that way. But even in the Code of Hammurabi, 
you know, Hammurabi being a Babylonian king who lived way before Moses, you find a lot of the things in the, in the Ten Commandments in the Code of Hammurabi. Why? Because human beings can't survive without a prohibition against the killing of the innocent. You can't have a society. It's common sense that human beings need to, to respect each other's life, each other's property, um, that parents need to be honored if a society is going to last. If you disobey the Ten Commandments, it destroys human well-being. And, you know, it's common sense to everyone, except maybe some of us in the modern world today, that this world didn't come out of nowhere, that it came from a creator, and therefore we owe him worship and homage. That's something that makes sense to most people before the last, you know, I would say two centuries. And it still makes sense to most people in America today. So that is something that comes from reason, okay? The existence of God, basic moral law. But there are many things that we can't know about God except through his revelation. Okay? We see traces of God in the world. We see traces of God in ourselves as in human beings. We see traces of God in nature, but they're only traces. It's not a full personal revelation of God, an intimate revelation. That's what revelation's about. God comes to us and gives us knowledge that we couldn't have had any other way. We don't have the equipment for it. We don't have the right to it. But he, in his loving mercy, invites us to a relationship with himself, and he reveals himself to us. Okay? So let me say a last couple of things about, about apologetics. The Catholic Church teaches that it is possible to prove the existence of God. But the Catholic Church does not endorse any one particular proof and say this is conclusive and everyone's going to be convinced by it. St. Thomas Aquinas put together five famous proofs of the existence of God. And they've moved many people, some arguments more than others. St. Anselm put together a very powerful proof for the existence of God. But that doesn't really you know, get everybody excited. It's really moved many people. So it doesn't canonize. The church doesn't say there's, you know, one proof that's, that's you know, everyone needs to, to, to recognize as being foolproof, but it says that it's possible for reason to discover the existence of God without the aid of revelation, okay? Now, the other thing I want to say is the proofs that are used in apologetics are not the proofs of the laboratory or the proofs of a mathematical theorem, okay? Rather, they're convincing arguments, like evidence. If you go to a law court, what you find is evidence that's brought to bear. And what you're looking for to come up with a verdict is evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, enough evidence so that, you know, there's not a reasonable doubt that someone is either innocent or guilty. And that's the way this kind of apologetical arguments work. We're not talking about you know, try, try saying that we can put a formula together that proves the existence of God. We're saying that evidence exists that's, that, that's conclusive beyond a reasonable doubt that God exists, that certain things such as murder don't work, they're against human nature, you know. These are the kinds of things we're talking about. And when it comes to um, other, we can get into other areas too, besides just these basic moral laws, we can use common sense in apologetics and make an argument for the, you know, the church the church having divine origin. You know, we look at 2,000 years and we look at pastors who have many times betrayed and failed the church, beginning with Peter and, and beginning with Judas. We look at laity who have oftentimes disgraced Christ and misrepresented the church. And we see hostile forces from the outside. But over 2,000 years, we see continuity. We see the survival of the Catholic Church. Now, that's an argument. It's a piece of evidence that there's something more to the church than simply human ideas. That's apologetics at work, to look at the resurrection of Christ and say, you know, 
it's, it's amazing that those guys, all those 12, went to their deaths with the story that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't really make a lot of sense that the, there would be a fraudulent claim, that no, that we, no one comes forward and provides evidence that, that Jesus' resurrection was a fraud, and these guys all go to their deaths, and they don't get awards, and they don't get in their lifetime great material benefits for their leadership of the church. They get suffering. They get, as Paul mentioned, shipwrecks, and they get scourgings, and, you know, and Paul finally loses his head. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless the resurrection's real. The most logical, the most logical uh, verdict would be that Jesus really did rise from the dead to explain what happened in the early church. Now, that's apologetics at work, okay? That's using natural knowledge, common sense. Okay, so that's what apologetics is, and we're not going to do apologetics in this course. What we're going to do, and we're also not going to talk about the act of faith. Let me just mention for a minute that the act of faith and the analysis of it, trying to explain what faith is, has been, as one modern theologian in the 19th century put it, it's the cross of theologians for the last 2,000 years. So, you know, if you really think about it, faith is hard to explain. And it's hard to explain to a rational person who doesn't have faith why faith is not an irrational leap in the dark. But it needs to be done. People need to think about what faith is. And, and the scriptures give us many, many uh, teachings on the nature of faith. There's great traditional sources on the nature of faith. So that's a specialty within fundamental theology. But what we're going to do in the next... 11 sessions after this one, is we're going to look at Revelation and particularly where it is that we find authoritative information about God. What are the norms for Catholic thinking, for Catholic teaching, for Catholic life? Scripture, tradition, and magisterium. But before we get into those three, let's just talk a little bit about Revelation itself, the nature of Revelation. Revelation means pulling back the veil. That's the etymology or the origin of the word pulling back the veil. What are we pulling back the veil to see? We're pulling back the veil, and we're not doing it. God's doing it, because we don't have the ability or the right to pull back the veil and see who God is. God is sovereign. He is much greater than us. He is much bigger than us. We don't have the equipment to understand Him. So God, in Revelation, makes it possible for us to catch a glimpse of who He is. The the content of Revelation, this is very, very important to get. The content of Revelation in Catholic understanding is not so much information about God. See, we had some information about God based on looking at nature. You know, apologetics can tell us that God is good, that God has to be one. You can't have a supreme being um, and have multiple supreme beings. This is a supreme being. See, the definition of, of, of God, okay? So God has to be one. There's certain things that we can know about God, but that doesn't give us any personal relationship with Him, not any intimate acquaintance, okay, with God. There's a lot of things that we know about through book learning and, and no direct experience. Revelation is about God revealing Himself to us. Now, there's a lot of information that comes from Revelation, if we're going to understand who he is, there is information that we need, and we can't get that but from reason alone. So there is information. There are propositions that are true, and they, they, they're part of Revelation. But fundamentally, Revelation is not about giving us propositional facts to memorize. It's about revealing to us the triune God himself, so that that changes our life, so that we have an intimate, personal acquaintance with him. It's pretty awesome. And if you think about it, it's kind of like the difference between someone acquiring information uh, over the internet 
about a person and someone meeting a person face to face and really getting to know that person. We have different, in, in other languages, there are different words for to know. You can know facts, okay, in Spanish that's saber, um, but you can also know the person through acquaintance, through experience. That's called conocer. And we have similar in, in Italian and Spanish and a lot of the Romance languages. There are different, different ideas of knowing. So here we're talking about personal knowledge of acquaintance. That's what God wants to convey to us. And there is some, some knowledge of facts, but fundamentally it's a personal relationship that he is, he is, he's letting us into. He's inviting us into. Okay? So let's talk about for a minute um, the idea of revelation of God himself. The triune God and his plan for our lives, that is the content of Revelation. Let me say it one more time. The content of Revelation is the triune God himself and his plan for our lives. His, and that plan has to do with a relationship with him. So it's all about relationship. That relationship is a mysterious one because God is mystery. He's beyond our understanding. And this mystery, this, the mystery of God and his plan for us is intelligible. We can get insight into it. We can get knowledge of it. But we can never exhaust it. We can never grasp it. Okay? It's unfathomable. We'll be unpacking it forever. And that's one of the exciting things about heaven. Heaven is not going to be a stagnant place where we sit around and are bored. Heaven is going to be a place where we are ceaselessly entering into deeper understanding of God. So it'll be dynamic experience for all eternity. Okay? So we're talking about the secret, the secret of who God is and his will for us. That's what Paul talks about a lot. Jesus talks about a secret. You know, he asked the, the apostles in many circumstances to be quiet and not reveal who he is. Okay? It's not quite time for it yet. There are many times during his public ministry, he tells some people that he heals, don't tell anybody, and they disobey him and they go tell people. You know, but there's a certain secret. There's, there's a, Christ is revealing something that no eye had ever seen, no ear had ever heard. The plan of God is astounding. And we hear in Ephesians 1 about God's secret plan, the mystery of Christ, unknown in former ages, but now revealed in the Spirit. We see Ephesians 6.19 talk about the mystery of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 4.1 talks about the fact that the apostles are stewards of the mysteries of God. That the fact that God is incomprehensible, we find in a lot of different scriptures. 1 Timothy 3, 9, God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Corinthians 2, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. No eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So God can never be like a solved crossword puzzle. We can never figure him out and then put him in our back pocket and you know, yawn. That's never going to happen. It says in De Filius from Vatican I, uh, that's a great document uh, uh, on Revelation, that the divine benefits entirely surpass the powers of the human mind to understand. St. Augustine said it very succinctly. He said, what you understand cannot be God. Because by, by definition, what you understand you master. And God is the master of all. You can't master him. So when we embark on Revelation, we have to come again humbly knowing that we, we can't ever under, master God, but we can't walk away thinking that we've, we've lost out, that we're, it's a hopeless exercise, because the, the light that we have, the understanding we have of God, can expand. And that's why theology is something that all of us ought to be involved in. All the faithful need to have their faith seek understanding.